Hi, this is Eugene, and it's a great privilege and honor to be able to introduce this episode to you in which Paul speaks with Yuka Yasui Fujikura, a 93-year-old Japanese-American woman who, like Mary Murakami in a previous episode, was also taken to the internment camps when she was just 14. Yuka is a fantastic storyteller, and that made it really difficult for me to cut out particular anecdotes, but you will be able to listen to the entire conversation in its original, which we'll be posting alongside this one. So... The last thing that I want to say is that I was also particularly inspired to learn about Yuka's brother, Minoru Min Yasui, who was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for challenging the constitutionality of curfews that were imposed on uh, minority groups. So I think that was really inspiring to me because it's very easy to slide into skepticism or give up in the face of injustice. And, you know, it's like these stories that allow us to ground ourselves and remember what matters beyond our own safety and comfort. So with that in mind, here's Paul with Yuka. Special guest today, uh, Mrs. Yuka Yasui Fujikura, born and raised in Oregon, whose story I heard for the first time last April in Washington, D.C., uh, as part of um, the annual uh, Freedom Walk as part of the Cherry Blossom Festival at the Japanese American Memorial, where uh, she shared her story of being sent to uh, Tule Lake Camp and um, her experience of family separation. Thank you so much, Yuka, for inviting me into your home. You are welcome. And I just found out that you're actually my uh, Yale senpai. I wear both Yale's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit older than Paul, though. He being quite young and I being 93. But um, Yale can hold us together, too. I think you're younger at heart than me, actually. <laughs> But, I mean, I, I wish, um, could you please start off by just uh, introducing yourself and your family? Okay. I'm Yuka Yasui Fujikura, and it has been 78 years since we were evacuated from a small town in Oregon called Hood River. It was a sad, sad day when we got to the railroad station carrying only what we could take in our own hands. No one was there to say goodbye to us or to wish us well or that they would even hope to see us again. But very much in my mind was not only the friends, the two-legged friends, but the four-legged friends that we had at home. We had a cat named Nicodemus who had lived with us for years and a dog named Mike and he had lived with us for years, and they had loved us, we had loved them, and certainly before being evacuated, we tried to find a home for them. But you know, they were tainted with Jap blood. Who wants a cat or a dog <laughs> with Jap blood? And no one would take them. And often when we'd leave, just for uh, doing some errands or shopping, 
we'd let them go outside and they would have fun. But we always said, we'll be back in about, oh, an hour or two hours. So you wait here and we'll be back for you. But on the day of evacuation, we could just put them out and say, God love you. God will take care of you. Because we had no idea when we would ever come back. And they were just left out on the sidewalk looking forlornly, not knowing where we were going or why we were going. So that was a very sad day. I missed my human friends, but I did miss those two pets who were very dear to our family. Wow. And, and you were the is it youngest of, of I, nine, I, nine yes, children? I was the youngest of nine children, but two had passed away earlier, so I didn't really have good recollections of them. But there were seven of us, and um, we were very close to a school playground. And after school, we used to go there and play. And when we would play on the playground, on the swings and on the teeter-totters, there was always a group of kids, well, bullies, and they'd say, oh, look at those Jap kids. Hey, kid, go back to Japan where you come from. I'd say, me? No, I'm made in USA. I'm American. And they'd say, oh, no, you're not. Hey, if you're not going to Japan, you can go to hell. Well, by the time I was 10 years old, I was I was going to hell, I thought. But um, I've often thought, in retrospect, that those children who kept bullying us and kept calling us a Jap and slant-eyed and flat-nosed, if their children ever, or they themselves ever got to go to school to further their education because of the seven of us, of the Yasuis, we all went to college. And were we fortunate enough to go to not only to college, but sometimes to get a degree beyond just college, and my oldest brother took care of my father's farms, uh, of which he had quite a few. Min became an attorney. Michi, my sister, became a teacher. Roku was an engineer, and Robert was a surgeon. Homer was a surgeon, and I became a nurse. So we were very fortunate in being able to further our education, and I wondered if the bullies ever got an education beyond uh, grade school. Wow. And and just fast-forwarding a bit, you were, if I remember correctly, you, you were 14 years old uh, during the attack on Pearl Harbor? I was that? 14 years so old. So do you remember, you know, what you and your family did or what happened to you and your family during that time? Well, the first thing, the war started December 7th, as many of you recall, Maybe you don't recall, you're not as old as I am, but it was a Sunday, and the Treasury Department came. I, I can't remember, it must have been the very next day that they came and they sealed, literally sealed the doors of our store, which we had in a small town called Hood River. And on school days, the children who lived uh, further down the street than I would stop and they'd ring the doorbell and they'd say, come on, you got to go to school, got to go to school. And on Monday morning, I kept waiting and waiting for them to come by for me. And it got later and my mother said, you know, you better run to school, you're late. So when I got to school, 
I could hear all this whispering, but I got the name. Yeah, Jap Spy, I could hear. And they were accusing, apparently, my father of being a Jap Spy. And that was on Monday. And every day you would hear rumors that the um, leaders of the so-called Japanese community in different towns were being taken by the FBI. And so every day I would run home as fast as I could to see if my mother and father were still at home. And on December 12th, well, that would be just five days after Pearl Harbor, I got home a little bit before my brother, and my father was in handcuffs. And the FBI had searched our home and picked up valuable scrolls and valuable papers from our home. But Dad had left Japan when he was 16 years old. He didn't have too many valuable anything. But uh, I kept asking, what is he being charged with? Well, girl, he is a potentially dangerous enemy alien. You know, you can be potentially anything. (laughs) But that was his charge. And we wondered, where are you taking him? Where is he going? Uh, Will he be deported? Will he be shot? They said, can't tell you. And they got him in a car. And, you know, this is December. It's quite cold. He didn't have time to pack a heavy wool coat or take any warm clothes with him or, indeed, any um, shaving material or um, care for his personal uh, needs. They just took him. And for a long time, we had no no idea where he was going, how long he was going to be kept. Would he be killed? Will he be sent someplace else? Did your, before your father was sent away, did he tell your mother or, or you or any of your siblings, you know, about a, a plan for when you might see each other next or no. what to do while he was away? Or Well... He didn't have time, and there's only five days, and you're not thinking. One thing, um, he did not give my mother the power of attorney, of attorney to withdraw funds, for instance. And um, you think, is that the thing that you would be thinking of? Do, do I plan to have the power of attorney written? Because you don't know where you're going or how long you're going to be. Uh, around so I don't know that they made any deep plans but to the children of course were on their minds and um, Homer and I the brother next to me and I were the only two left at home the others were in uh, college Mm -hmm. or had already finished college so the immediate thing was to take care of Homer and me in case my mother was taken by the FBI also. And um, then my brother uh, had heard all these orders and restrictions from General DeWitt on the West Coast, and um, the curfew was one of them. This referred, however, to just the citizen, U.S. citizen children of the Japanese. It did not refer to the Italian or the German aliens who also had 
children of U.S. citizenship. It did not, the curfew did not apply to them. And they had no travel restrictions insofar as not being able to be a certain distance away from your home. But on March 30th of 1942, my brother Min, who had really, he, he was just a brand new lawyer. He had not much experience at all. Um, challenged this curfew and um, he walked the streets of Portland after 8 p.m. and no policeman they might have thought he was not Japanese they might have thought that he was uh, of another Asian group but he finally walked into the police station and the um, policeman there oh said okay Sonny we'll arrest you and um, he um, was uh, arrested and uh, well eventually he, he had a penalty of um, of nine months solitary confinement and a uh, a fine which just seemed just so large that we couldn't even think of where we'd find the money soon after that the evacuation orders to leave hood river was may 7th of 1942 by then i was 15 i was a a little older, not any smarter, but a little older. And um, the day of the evacuation, as I say, no one came down to say goodbye or we'll see you again or we'll take care of your farm. En route to the evacuation, we didn't know, we thought we would be sent to the Portland Stockyards, which was only about 66 miles. But we started it seemed to be heading, the train seemed to be heading south. And uh, we um, thought, we're going south. We might go through Eugene, Oregon, where the University of Oregon is located, and where my sister Michi and my brother were attending school. And the shades had to be drawn. But when we thought we were near Eugene, just on a sheer guess, we raised the shades, and sure enough, was my sister Michi standing on a hill. She had been waiting hours because she had heard the rumor that the train would be headed south. And sure enough, we waved, and my mother said, "We may never see her again." So I, I'm. Uh, that's just an. That's just hard to imagine for me. That it sounds like something from a movie. Oh no! But this it, is not a yeah, movie. Yeah, it's a. But it, so, February 1942 was when uh, FDR signed Executive Order 9066. Yes. And then you said uh, it took May was when um, your family was sent to uh, the camp. We were. The war started, of course, in December, and then um, our our store was closed. All of our business was closed. And being farmers, you know, you have to get out to the orchards early. You don't wait until 10 a.m. to get out. You get out early, but uh, unless you lived right on the farm, you were not permitted to drive out. And we lived in this very small town of Hood River, but it was more than five miles from our homes, most of the farms that my father owned. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it was May 7th that we got orders to leave Hood River. But before then, between February, when the executive order was signed, and May 7th, did you have a sense that 
you might have to be evacuated or sent away somewhere else or, or displaced? Yes, we always heard rumors that um, that this was going to come. But, you know, there's something in you that doesn't believe it. Oh, they would, you know, we're, we're, we're U.S. citizens. They are not going to ship us out. And then, uh, well, in, in, in March, you know, men tested the curfew. So that threw our family into another different situation. And men was not able to call from the jailhouse immediately to my mother and saying, well, Mom, you got somebody else in jail now. But as soon as he was um, able to get out of jail, he called Mom and he said, Mom, I really hate to trouble you because your dad is, we don't know quite sure where, how long he's going to be gone, if he'll ever come back alive. He says, I hate to prune you with this and she says shinasai. hang in there we're all with you you did the right thing and we're, we're with you a hundred percent and she says there's no way I can inform dad because we don't know where he is really uh, she said that he would be with you too so hang in there shinasai. that's what I'm curious about, because, you know, in, in Japanese culture, there's this concept of gaman, gaman, and the shikata ga nai, so you just, you know, there's no shoganai, right? There's nothing no. you can do about it, so might as well just go with, go with the system. So that's some of the justification or, or reasoning that I've heard um, why a lot of Japanese Americans obeyed the orders, obeyed the evacuation orders. But that that's what really strikes me about your brother, Min, mm-hmm. is that he was very intentional about testing those limits. And, but and wrong he, is wrong. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you think was about it that caused him not to say, shikata ga nai, but say, shikata ga aru. He, there's a way. He got that from his parents both his father and his mother, because if it was wrong, it was wrong. If it's right, it's right. And my mother never gave up on thinking, oh, it's it's sad, it's sad. She never gave in to that. She said, it's wrong, and you've got to fight it. finally got to our destination we realized that we were south and we were in Pinedale California which is very close to Fresno and it was hot as Hades oh it was hot they gave us a cot and uh, some hay and they said now stuff these mattresses Uh, they weren't mattresses the hay became our mattress and if you've ever had hay fever (laughs) good luck and they showed us to our barracks and Homer, Mom, and I shared one barrack. 
I mean, not one bear, one room of a bear. And they were not wall-to-wall closed. You could hear things that happened down the end of the bears. And so, my goodness, you didn't need a telephone. You could hear all the gossip this way and this way. And uh, there was one overhead light hanging in the middle of the room. And um, then we put our three cots. That was our furniture. There was no place to sit, uh, no place to, well, if you want to lie down on a hay-filled mattress, and well, yes, it was hay-filled mattress, uh, and sneeze all night, that was your that was your problem. And, of course, there was no running water, and the toilets were out of the barracks themselves. We had to walk through. If the weather was bad, we just walked through the mud or the dirt and uh, went to the bathroom, and there were no doors on the toilet. So that um, I used to always say to my mother, Oh, I, I want a little privacy. She says, Well, just close your eyes. <laughs> you know, nobody's there. Just close your eyes. But I was afraid of the snakes and the scorpions that used to also use the same bathroom that we did. And when it rained, we'd come back with muddy feet because I only had one pair of shoes. We'd wipe our feet with whatever was there. You know, we didn't get any magazines or newspapers, so there was hardly anything to wipe. So I usually get my hand and just scrape off the the mud from my feet and wait until it dried, my feet dried from the mud, and then and then go to bed. But we didn't have real nice sheets or anything. It really didn't make too much difference if you went to bed with dirty feet or dirty body for that. And was this just a temporary situation in Pinedale? We before hoped you, it was. Yeah. But, you know, one weekend seemed forever. But then we uh, got news that we would soon be moving to Tule Lake, which is in Northern California. And um, let's see, we stayed... Uh, we stayed from we stayed from May till June uh, until July to get to Tule Lake, which was a more permanent um, place to stay. And you know, some people stayed there for five years, so it was more permanent. And um, it was surrounded by uh, armed sentries. They would be pointing their guns inward, not outward, and. Tule Lake is considered a bird sanctuary, not a Jap sanctuary. And we could see the birds flying in and out and in and out. And I used to look up and be so jealous that the birds, they didn't need any ID. They didn't say, are you Jap? Are you, you know, uh, Italian? They just came and went as they pleased. And I used to say to my mother, oh, I wish I were a bird. And... Uh, she would say, if his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he thinks of me. And uh, in many ways, she comforted me with many, many, um, well, Christian thinking. And um, I used to think that um, she didn't need to sing it so loudly, but there is a hymn that says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong off seems so strong god is the rooter yet and she as soon as we passed the century century he would sing it as loud as she could so that not only could the century hear but i'm sure god heard too but we spent our days um 
with no newspapers, no radio, no form of entertainment. And of course, nobody came to see us. We were too far. We were in Pinedale, California, and we were sure no, you know, there would not be any anybody coming to see us. But they did start what is called a school, and um, teachers were niceys mostly mm-hmm. who spoke English and and could con- convey their teaching to us. But one day I went to school, and the teacher said, "Now." We must learn how to spoke good English, and that did me in. I didn't mind learning how to type with a piece of paper with A, S, D, F, G. That I could stand, but to have someone teach me English, it just stopped me, and I complained to my mother, and my mother, having been a former school teacher, was very concerned that if both Homer and I, who were at camp with her, um, said, well, you're not going to get into college because you have not been through a certified school. And I thought, gosh, never get to college. Everybody else in my family had been to college except Homer and me. But eventually, Homer, who was uh, older than I, applied to the University of Denver. And, you know, Colorado had one of the few governors who would welcome the Japs. And he was able to get to the University of Denver, and he could use that address. And um, he said, you know, Yuka ought to get out of camp, too. She's not going to get to college. And uh, I had an older sister, the sister that the University of Oregon had at night got and as far as Denver, and um, she said, I will be Yuka's guardian. But during the meantime, she was able to get a job in Chicago and was no longer in Denver. And and at 17, Homer was not old enough to become my guardian. But we didn't bother to tell the um, authorities that. I applied to leave camp, and my mother would be there by herself. But she said, go go and um, I did have an aunt and an uncle but they were way at the other end of camp and my oldest brother was also in the same camp but they were far away and there were no telephones and you had to walk quite a long ways to get there Uh, and she encouraged me though I was then 15 I was a, a year older and she says if you get permission to leave camp, you go. And I thought, yeah, with Homer, a 17-year-old brother, you know how much how much guardianship would have given me. But anyway, uh, five months later, I was given permission to leave, to leave camp. And the bus uh, came to pick me up. And my mother had rushed to the mess hall to get me some bread and some boiled eggs. And it's interesting because in an earlier diary, my father, who worked on the railroad going west, said that he was going to be moved to another location. And so his friend that morning got some bread, got some boiled eggs, and took it to my father. And he said, on the road, you may not be able to buy anything. They won't sell you anything because you're a chap so i didn't know that i didn't know that uh, you know people inside the camps um could leave 
you know, because of the century. So under what conditions uh, could people receive permission to leave? Was it only school or, or the military? or? Well, of course, if you were uh, in the military and they drafted you, you, you would go. And uh, if you could be accepted by a bona fide university, you could go. And uh, also, you know, there was a shortage of farmers because other men were being drafted. And so my oldest brother was able to leave camp when they needed labor, farm labor. And it's just true even today when they need to have uh, people picking crabs to get the crab meat out of the shells. They are not done by many U.S. citizens. They are done by immigrants. And at that time, you could get permission to leave under restrictions, though. But the day I left for camp, and I thought, how history repeats itself that my father had received bread and eggs, boiled eggs, uh, so that he could leave camp and not be hungry all the way. And I was going from Tule Lake, which is Northern California, to, to Reno. And then when I got to Reno, Reno, oh, I got off and I could smell a hamburger and a french fries. Oh, I longed <laughs> to taste them. But my mother had given me $17 in cash, and she says, get it Be careful how you spend this money because it's the last $17 you're going to get. And, uh, oh, I, the, the smell of that hamburger was just <laughs> overpowering. But anyway, I took my boiled eggs and sat in the railroad station <laughs> and ate my boiled eggs and, um, and um, bread. And then when I got to Denver, Homer, my, my brother was there and he said um, he uh, had found me a place where I could work uh, and go to school and that was a very convenient arrangement because I could do both and um, I had $17 I thought oh I could stay at a hotel you tried to stay at a hotel for $17 and you got a surprise coming and but for the first uh, first two or three nights a very kind Nisei young woman offered to let me sleep in her apartment I didn't know we were going to sleep together with a strange <laughs> a stranger but she was very kind but she had gotten a job working to clean their apartment and so she got a room free downstairs but um, I thought the kindness of people I'm a total stranger and she welcomed me and that made me feel oh Denver is a wonderful place wow I mean it what really strikes me was the parallel between what you said and how history repeats itself with your father and the you know the boiled eggs and mm. the bread that your mother got for both yeah. you and him that just reminds me um you know i think i i had mentioned to you recently and uh i'd been to san francisco and in japantown there was the 78th or the the 41st anniversary um, of the Day of Remembrance mm. in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the, the theme was uh, never again is now uh, because history keeps repeating itself. But I, I just wanted to first ask you, when was the next time then that all of your siblings and your parents got to be re reunited and see each other again in one room? About 30, 30 years. 
you know, that my my dad had been moved from, first he was at the Multnomah County Jail, which is in Portland. Then he got moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, or, or Missoula, Montana. And boy, that's cold in winter. Missoula, Montana. Then Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Camp Livingston, Louisiana. And finally to Santa Fe. And, um, you know, the war ended in 45, but he was not released from camp until 46. It was a whole half a year later that he was finally released. And um, at that time, by then, yeah, I was at... um, New Haven, Connecticut, because that's where Yale is. Best city in the country. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, my brothers, one was in Chicago, one was in, we were scattered all over. And um, my mother said, if you go to Yale, it's so far. So we won't see you until you get your degree. And by that time, they would have saved enough money to get on a train and come to see me. And she said, it was expensive, you know, for seven kids to be going here and there. So we never really got together. It took about this long. And um, it was a long time before we all got together. You know, you have you have six siblings, and uh, it takes money, time. And um, so it was maybe at my father's funeral that we finally got together. But, you know, it's it's not for... Now, these occasions are happy occasions, but a funeral... Yeah, that family photo, what's the occasion for for that photo Yeah, that, that you're showing me? Yeah. Well, this is one of the few farms that my father was able to retain, and that's on the farm. And um, as I say, there are quite a few lawyers in this, because by God, it's not... We're not moving again. We're not being evacuated. And I think it is... It's not incumbent upon us as Japanese Americans to help every single um, person who is being detained uh, or not being given help. But we certainly are an example of how it can be done. And But it shouldn't be done to separate children from their parents and not be able to get guidance from their own parents, not to be taught by their own parents. And this business of separation, I feel it very, very strongly. Yeah, what really, again, I think resonates with me was, I guess I didn't really understand, realize the the extent of family separation uh, as a result of the evacuation and executive order 9066 until until today because I was always under the impression that, you know, throughout the evacuations, uh, families, Japanese-American families, uh, stayed together. Oh, no, no, but no. But as you said, your, your family was separated, not only separated before going to camp, but even at the camp, as you said, it seems like you were separated from your oldest brother, and, and your aunt and uncle, you said, mm-hmm. within the camp itself. And then even after leaving the camp, because there wasn't support for families going back, it seems like it was really difficult for your family to come together and, and, and be together like you used to be uh, in in, in, oh, yes. in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Oh, during the holidays, we used to all get together as a family. And um, it was, and you know... Once we got to camp, too, there were a lot of kids who never ate with their parents. They were they were free. 
you know, to be with their buddies. And uh, my mother used to say, you know, Homer, my brother, doesn't eat with us. He's eating with his buddies and having a good time. Well, you know, you're not 17 always. You might as well have fun when you can. And no mother to hang over you and a father to say, you know, mind your manners. So separation has many meanings, but to lose your family is one of the hardest things, to be separated. Um, well, at 15, I was pretty grown up, I, I thought. But there were so many things you don't know at 15, and you need some guidance. And a 17-year-old brother is not where to get your guidance. Yeah. You got, I was going to, first, I, I mean, I was originally planning on asking you um, about you know various apologies and oh, um, yeah. uh, what's it called redress mm -hmm. you know in 1988 civil civil liberties act under President Reagan and recently there's the the, the bill that passed in the California uh, State Assembly mm -hmm. apologizing but I I just realized that you have a much more you know very very personal story with uh, your brother receiving the the presidential medal oh, yes. of freedom uh-huh um was that how recent was that uh, obama yeah so it would be uh well can't remember the year but anyway yeah i remember you you showed me the photo yeah. uh y your family receiving that on behalf of, of uh, or your brother but i just wanted to ask what it was like um so many decades later mm -hmm. uh for your family to to receive that award yes um after your brother had passed away it meant a lot to us it would have meant more to men because he is the one who went through you know this jail experience and to be humiliated and you know there were many nieces who kept saying, oh, that damn fool, what a big show-off. He just wants to get a lot. He just wants to see his name in the, uh, in the newspaper. They missed the whole point. That was not men. It never was men. He didn't do it to, you know, get his name in the paper. He, very much like my parents, it was wrong. Don't you try to right a wrong? And if you know it's wrong and you do nothing then you, you too become part of the masses that, you know, that are being so critical of you. So that um, I think that, you know, men saw it in many ways that the Niseis themselves, because I know a lot of people who said, don't give, don't give that $10 to the Minyasui cause. You know, it's just going to be used to publicize men, not, not the cause. But it was bigger than men it was wrong and he wanted people to know and understand that you don't treat people like that they're human beings too so that when you hear the news you know it's wrong and unless you well i can't physically go out and protest but if i had the you know the the will i had the will i don't have the wellness to do that and um I thought that if more of us could realize that there are ways to express ourselves and to let people know that these things did go on, that it was wrong then, it's still wrong today. I don't care how many years passes. Yeah, I guess my my last question is, is on that note. 
of it's wrong then it's wrong today and i i just want you know i i had asked you earlier it's been how many years since you were you were at tule lake it's been over it's been over 70 years right oh yeah yeah it's been over 70 years since you were at at the camp Mm -hmm. um but still you keep on speaking out you're at the the freedom walk last last spring and you know you've had a very successful career in in public health and nursing and you know uh, traveling and you will not find a yasui that is not still protesting it's my father and my mother both knew right from wrong Mm -hmm. and if it was wrong we knew it so that it's no it's nothing special that we do it's just within us and when people are harmed or hurt then if you don't speak up something's the matter with you not them so what do you think is the do you have any takeaways for listeners and i would say younger listeners um to to this conversation um after listening to your story and your experience of of what others can do of what we can do you can protest you can write you can talk to people who might be very helpful not even it doesn't have to be necessary a congresswoman or a congressman it can be a senator I think that even if you speak among your friends and you think that it's wrong, I'm never shy about telling them, I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. And of course you have to maybe live to be 93 before you, but I think I've always said it. If it's not right, it's not right. So now it's just you and your brother Homer um, who are left, right? And Oh, we have all these relatives. Oh, oh out of your uh, your siblings. At least. Yes, yes. And did you say that um, Homer is speaking at this... Uh, the... I think... I'm not sure. So I recently heard about... There's a, I would say, movement uh, event that's happening in early June. Uh, June 5th to 7th, to be exact, in Washington, D.C. Yes. Um, through... It's called Tsuru for Solidarity. yes. Uh, outside the White House, and it's uh, the lar- largest gathering of of Japanese Americans yes. um, since World War II, mm-hmm. and all about not, you know, showing solidarity. Yes, for people who are, uh, you know, forced into camps today and separated from their families separated. today. Yeah. Well, you know, my brother Homer is ninety six, so whether we'll still be around in June, you don't know, but. But, you know, God willing, we will be. And um, to share our stories because we lived it. And by God, we survived it too. And it's never been an easy trip. But we've gone there. We've been there. listening and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation please follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform
Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the music, and see you next time.